You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome, everyone, to the 602 Club. I am so excited to be here this week. We're coming at you from a little planet called Chandrilla. That's right. We finally learned how to pronounce that name, and I'm so excited to be here uh, from the Star Wars galaxy. Uh, if you're if you're not picking up what I'm laying down, if you haven't read the aftermathing, I mean the aftermath books, I just like to call it the aftermathing. I think it's funnier. Uh, so I I'm just ecstatic to be here with with some guys to talk through. A big trilogy finally came to an end here with the new canon books. And so uh, before we dive into that, going to remind you just real quickly, you can find all the shows here uh, on Trek FM Network at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. You are a feature provider there. While you're there, any of the shows, especially 602 Club or Star Wars 602 Club's collection, hit us up with a star rating and review. It definitely helps the show grow. We really appreciate it. And of course, anytime that happens, we will give you a shout out on the show. You can find us on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. Our listeners-only discussion group is on Facebook as well. That's called the Babel Conference, and uh, if you want to find that, you can type Babel into the search field on Facebook, or you can go to our website at Trek.FM, and you will see on the mini bars, it'll say discussion. Hit that, and it'll bring you right to it. And last but not least, if, if you'd like to, just maybe send us a long-form email, maybe some extensive thoughts about this or any of the other topics we talk about here in the 602 Club, go to trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club, that'll come straight to me and anybody else who was on that show, and we'll be able to converse that way. So now, uh, this this called for some special people to be here. Uh, unfortunately, we... Uh, we lost to the nether regions of space on the outward side of the galaxy, somewhere where only Thrawn has been able to plot. Uh, John Mills has gotten lost, so we had to bring in backup. So we have with us the one, the only, the man who knows legends and canon better than anybody else that I know, Mark Oh, Herman. thank you. You must not know Nathan. <laughs> My co-host will be on the film. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do know a lot, but... Uh, the most. No, uh, Nathan definitely knows a lot more than I do. But I do notice a lot of things, and I pay attention to things, and I'm always pondering things, as you'll know on Beyond the Films. <laughs> but I'm excited to be here, man. I mean, I, I'm a little bummed that we're not talking Trek, because I also dig Trek. That was actually one of my first fandoms. My dad was a big Trekkie. Well, well, he was a J.J. A. or not J.J. Abrams, a J.R. Tolkien, and then went Trek, and I was the guy late at night recording it for him while he was working. So I watched it all. Nice. And, uh, yeah, I'm a big Trek fan as well. That's awesome, man. Oh, I love it. I, I, I always think it's funny, those people who are like, I can't be a Trek right? and Star Wars fan. I'm like, yeah, you can. They're two totally different yeah, types of sci-fi. Go with the sci-fi. first word. That's all you need. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And of course, if, if you've been around the 602 Club long enough, you know somewhere lurking in a corner with his beer and his shot is the one and only Bruce Gibson. Hey, Bruce, you sober enough to talk about this? I am... S- yeah. <laughs> well, I don't. I mean, I I don't want to give it away, but I don't. I, you might have wanted to drink a lot reading this one, so I don't know. Uh, yeah, possibly, possibly. Yeah. No, unfortunately, I have not had anything to drink today except for water. 
And okay. uh, I, I agree with Mark. Let's talk Star Trek and Star Wars. Let's do it both at the same time. <laughs> that's, that's the real aftermath <laughs> after you bring both of them together. So there you go. Uh, okay, so we are talking about Empire's End which is the last book in the Aftermath series by Chuck Windig, and we have talked about the previous two as well, so you can check those out on the 602 Club feed. Uh, of course, the original book just called wait, Aftermath. Wait, wait, The second You're one talking called a book? Life Debt. I thought we were talking about the Dark Empire comic. <laughs> no, wrong wrong. Empire's End, uh, well, Mark. It's a good thing I read and that so... one too. Okay, <laughs> okay. So I wanted to ask you guys what your kind of first, last impression, since, I mean, this is the last book in the series, what were your overall impressions of this last aftermathing? Oh, my gosh. Do I really have to answer that question? Uh, yeah, yeah, you do. That's why I get paid but the big... Wait, I don't get paid anything, but I'm still asking you the question. Okay, so the first book, I actually liked the first book. It was it was good. It wasn't great, but you know I was okay with it. And then, of course, if you heard those episodes of the Six Hundred Two Club, you'd know exactly what I thought. And then the second book I liked a little better. I'm not going to say now what I thought about this third book, but let's just say I was more excited about this book than the other two. But then it didn't hold up to what I was hoping. Mm, that's a very fair assessment for me. When I got to the first one, or Aftermath proper. Oh, man, I did not at all like Chuck's writing style. Um, you know, some people it wasn't a problem. Others, it was a jarring wrench in the cogs. And for me, it was it was one of those. I was really struggling with the tense. Uh, one of my favorite books in Legends was I, Jedi, which was all first person. But this was like first person, third person prose. And so it would kind of like bounce back and forth. And I was constantly like, is that how that's supposed to be read? And eventually I ended up switching to the audiobook, which... I got through that on the audiobook. Mark Thompson did a great job. I actually enjoyed that. I, I had the second book. Uh, I really enjoyed the second book a lot more. It felt like the characters really kind of came forward. Uh, again, I, I did the audiobook with that one. And Chuck Wendig is okay in the audio format. And then with this third one, I went back to reading and I was just, oh, it was a slog. Uh, when I first got into it, though, I mean, I cracked the book open. I couldn't stop. I was like, oh, this is really good. And then I went back because I was reading Catalyst and went back to the beginning half. And I felt like the beginning half of the book was like reading the first book all over again in writing style. And then I realized, oh, wait, I've been listening to these, not reading them. So then I went and I bought the audiobook and was listening to Mark Thompson doing that. And the way Chuck's style comes across in audiobook, it works. But there were a lot of times, especially with Ray Sloan's character, who does a lot of thinking between uh, sentences. So she'll say something, then have a snarky comment in her mind, and then go back to saying something. So when I was listening to Mark Thompson, I was just like, good Lord, man, Ray Sloan is really snarky. And so then I busted the book open and it was watching while I was reading it. I was like, oh, okay. But I noticed with the second book, I, I did similar, and that was what it took to really enjoy Chuck's style. Uh, but I think overall with the three of these books, for me, the interludes where in the first few books, I found that the interlude, especially the first one, it was more interesting than the story. The second one, it was like a, a fair shakeup. With this third one, I almost felt at times like the interludes should have just been their own tales of book because they were distracting me from overall what was going on. Whereas the second book, I was like, Bruce, I was excited for this third one. I was like, okay, this team has come together. You know, they're out hunting rebels. Like, let's do this. You know, we're building up towards Jakku. There's something really big on Jakku. Uh, and then when we got into it, you know, I, like I said, I read the second half, so I was really excited. The second half of the book was just, you know, going, moving, pacing was awesome. But then I went back and that first half was just such a slog. So that was really hard for me. 
Yeah, I, I uh, I'm really connecting with uh, I think what both of you guys are saying uh, in the sense that I'm I'm right there with you, uh, Mark. I I don't like Chuck's writing style. I think it feels, and I I, I think you talked about the audiobook brings to mind that the way he writes feels more like a screenplay. So it feels so truncated, and it and it feels very Shatner. It, it just it, there isn't a lot of depth to it. There, there's, there's not, a, a, especially when, and, and I hate to say this, but when you're, you're used to reading a James Luceno, uh, in canon or a, uh, Stover, Stover, or I'm thinking, um, John Jackson Miller or any of these guys where, uh, detail is very important. Uh, they're really adding a lot, you know, I mean, it just, it feels, um, it feels more like a novel. They're taking advantage of the novel format. Chuck's books, I, f- I feel like they lack the prose style to work well enough in novel form. And it hurts the storyline that we're getting here because we're in the we're supposed to be in the aftermath of the destruction of the Death Star, the beginning of the New Republic. And I don't feel like any of that world building that I would expect from a Star Wars book, especially in this time period, is happening especially like, again, I'm going to name Lucino, the great work he did with Catalyst and the world building he did from, you know, uh, the big middle of the Clone Wars to the, you know, basically almost uh, the beginning of uh, Rogue One time period and everything. And so, and I think uh, too, and you can listen back to the shows if you'd like, uh, we did, but, you know, the first Aftermath book, it was okay. I personally think the second one was worse and then this one, I was hoping, you know, beyond hope that it would be great. And I just, I kind of, I've read it twice to format my opinion. And let me just say this, that rereading it didn't help. It actually hurt yeah. the book. And I think that was something I was really shocked by. Because usually that doesn't happen. Like, you know, lots of times you, you will watch a movie and you're like, oh, that wasn't my favorite. And then you'll rewatch it and you're like... Oh, that was better than I thought it was, you know? But I, I reread this one and it, I think what happened was is that the pacing issues. So let's just, we're gonna do something different than we've done with any of the books before. We're just gonna kind of talk through there are five different parts to this book. Uh, and then we'll kind of give our whole wrap up and ask some big questions at the end. But part one flies for the most I mean, uh for the first half of part one, it's going really fast. Everything happens at like breakneck speed. I mean, they found what's going on in Jakku like way faster than I thought it was going to have happened. I mean, the book is really humming. It felt like one of the animated episodes uh, for Rebels or the Clone Wars because everything was happening so fast. And then all of a sudden there's just this point where it just kind of like holds. And it's when Nora and Jazz launch themselves out on Jakku and then everything slows down and it doesn't pick back up until they start to really ramp back up to getting in to get to Jakku. And that's like two thirds of the book. Like that middle section is really two thirds of the book. And so like, I have to say the first, the, the beginning part of the book, it had me hooked. I'm right there with you, Mark. And then all of a sudden it just, it really slowed down. Uh, and then it didn't pick back up until about, I guess, midway through part four. And then into part five, 
the wrap up is and it's just I that pacing I feel like really hurt this book big time because through the middle of it I was just like I feel like this is kind of repetitive mm-hmm. and boring. Well, you mentioned something that Nathan had said on our Beyond the Films review of this, which will actually probably come out a week or two after this one. Uh, He and I both on the second read were like, wow, I really thought this book was a lot better. But on the second time through, it was like, well, there are a lot of things that aren't building up together. They're not quite lining up. Uh, And and you had mentioned the world building. And I think that that was the one flaw was like it was like Chuck was trying so hard. Like you have the interludes that are telling you portions of what's going on. But in this one, it felt like the entire story was doing that. I mean. The second book, I felt like the team had finally became this this integral group. We're going to watch them do some really cool things. And then in this one, it really wasn't their story. It was more the story of what's going on at this point in the galaxy. And yeah, I was just like, can we get back to the good stuff? <laughs> right. Exactly. Because it, and, and that was a thing that it hurt the I mean, and this is what hurts the whole series in general, is that you build up this team. But then they really kind of have nothing to do with this last aftermath. Like, it became the thing that most people, I think, expected, which is to have Han, Leia, and Mon Mothma at least have a bigger role. And it's like those legacy characters kind of inched their way into the books and finally made their way into what everybody expected in this last book. But then you pushed out the characters you've been building up with for the last two books. And it was like, well, why do I, by the end of this book, I, and I'm just, I'm not trying to be mean, but I don't care at all about any of them. I don't care about Snap. I don't care about uh, Nora. I don't care about Jazz. I don't care about Jom that he died. Okay, because I barely knew him. Uh, See, you and know, Jom like, was one of those. There was just nobody to John care about. Jom was backwards about. for me because I, I read that part first. So I was balling. And then when I went back, I'm like, where is Jom? Like, he had like, what, one, maybe two chapters? You built him up so well in the second one. You made him this love foil, you know, thing going on between Jazz and Sinjir, who Sinjir was gay. So there was like, you know, there were such great interactions with the characters. Then we get to this book and they're split up right away. I'm like, wait. And there were so many coincidences. I mean, you know, the Mercurial Swift part at the beginning, you know, they use a trap to to capture him and stuff. And then he decides, well, I know where you're going, so I'm going to get you, Jazz. I mean, he got lucky that Jazz happened to get into the into the escape pod. Then yeah. even worse, when they're on Jakku, what's Nora tell Jazz? Spin in a circle and point. What if they would have went the wrong direction? I mean, there were so many yes. of these things all the way through the book. That wouldn't have yeah. happened. That would not have happened going in the wrong direction because the force was with them. <laughs> or Jakku is just so oh, small. Okay. It doesn't matter which way you go. Okay. You're going to get there within an hour. <laughs> That's Apparently. true. They walked the whole planet and they still got yeah. there. <laughs> well, no, I agree with you guys because the characters here's here's my thought i think the problem we have and this is just in general of all the new canon books these books are not going to succeed unless the author focuses on one or two characters and just focuses on building a character as much as they can i felt this was more just like you were saying this is just more story of what's going on and not really about who these people are and why i should care about them i mean i i didn't care that much for them in the first book and in the second book, my attitude changed on some of the characters. Like, I liked Jazz better in the second book than I did in the first book. And I really liked Singer in the first book, but not the second book. And it just kept moving around. And Nora, throughout these books, never meant anything to me. She's my least favorite character. And she's, like, the main character in this third book. And it's like you just don't really care. So if you don't care that much for the characters, you don't care what's going on. Well, and I think that's a 
a great way to put it because in the end, what happens here is that there's a lack, and we talked about the pacing, but there's also a lack of focus. And, and there's so much happening with all these interludes and this story and everything. Like, uh, there's, there's absolutely no focus on building. I mean, you either need to build the world and the characters, and yeah, I mean, you need to find some kind of focus. And the problem is, is that there are too many threads trying to be put together here into a tapestry, but the book is not well written enough to make that tapestry come together. And I hate to say it, but the only, there are very few authors that can create this type of tapestry and make it work. I mean, I think uh, we all have read Tolkien. I think he's able to do it. Uh, you know, somebody like, uh, I've never read Martin, but I heard that his uh, Game of Thrones books are very much like that, where you're weaving all of these things happening. You have to be an incredible writer to make that work. Otherwise... Just most general writers, they need a specific focus, especially if you're going to introduce new characters. And that's where, like a Lost Stars, where it's putting all these new characters into places where we're familiar with, but it's using all those things to build their lives. This is just so all over the place in all the books, and specifically here. And even, in, like you said, Mark, in this first part, uh, where you kind of just kind of break up this team that we've been spending time with, and then we're kind of back with legacy characters who just haven't had enough to do in this series. So we're just kind of like, uh, okay, you know, like, and I mean, gosh, uh, we'll we'll get we'll get to my mother later. But I one of the one of the very first things we learned in this in this first part, I wanted to ask you guys about this because it is a huge part of this book. And it doesn't, I don't buy it. Uh, I don't buy the reasoning behind it. So it hurts the whole story for the Empire, which has been the strongest part of the series so far. I loved Ray Sloan. I loved the Empire. I thought it's uh, the machinations of the different factions trying to get power uh, over each other and be the, you know, the new emperor. All that stuff was fascinating. This idea that Palpatine has a contingency plan so that basically if Luke, in the end, doesn't choose his way, he set up all these observatories around, which is what we find out is on Jakku. We'll get to some more of that later, but just this idea of this contingency plan. I wanted to ask you guys about this, because to me, this doesn't work with the character that I know of Palpatine from M or any of them, especially Return of the Jedi. When Luke says to him, your overconfidence is your weakness, that is Palpatine's problem. He doesn't believe he can't win. I don't believe that he would have come up with a contingency plan for if he died. Because what Sith cares about what happens when they die? They don't care about dying. They want to live forever in the mortal world. This doesn't jive with anything that I know about Palpatine or the Sith. And so... I've given my opinion, but I'm wondering if it, what you guys think. What about you, Mark? Yeah, that was one that didn't jive for me either. I mean, the whole the whole contingency plan was an interesting theory. And the observatories, when we get to that part, I, there's a lot I want to talk about that because it, there, I think, I don't even remember which chapter it was, but there was almost like two paragraphs that describe what they were. And, and you know, they're basically, you, look, you think of the galaxy as like a ninja star, right? And on each of these arms kind of thing, you've got one. They're all looking out. So Palpatine was looking outside the galaxy 
And Legends, they took that concept of, well, his looking outward and, and the aspect of he wanted to continue to conquest. Like, I could see that playing in. But Legends also took the aspect of the Vong coming in and were this big threat. And so Palpatine was trying to work towards stopping that. And they hint to something similar in the aspect that Palpatine feels a dark presence that he's the only one that can feel. Vader can't even feel it or anything like that. And they kind of lead you to think that it might be Snoke, but they really don't tell you one way or the other. And it's like, okay, so was he trying to set things up to stop this? guy and then it gets back to that well well if Jakku was special Jakku was one of a few that you know each one was different one was a depository for Sith artifacts one was backup uh, weapons plants kind of like what we saw with Scarif Uh, one actually had the weapons on them and then you had this one that was specifically meant to be a trap for both the Republic or whoever came afterwards and the Empire to level the playing field and yet yeah I'm in the same boat like it did not quite line up and then you have the droid sentinels that are basically kind of like proxy from the Force Unleashed 2 that look like oh, Palpatine. Oh, God. And, and seriously, yeah, the, the the whole idea that there is a robot that has semi-consciousness No, they were, some of them were sentient. It. They flat out said that. I'm I like, was like, really? Really? We're yeah, going we made here? robot Come clones. On. That's basically what they've done, and we don't know how many of them are out there. Because, again, I read the last half of the book first, so I was like, when we get to a scene with the Eclipse, they talk about, well, there'll be a Sentinel droid coming out there. And I'm like, Sentinel droid? What's a Sentinel droid? And then I went back and I found out what the Sentinel droids are. And I'm like, that's freaking creepy, man. Like, that is a droid clone, which gets to that angle of, you know, Palpatine's wanting to do that eternal life. Uh, Legends, again, when they did their Dark Empire and all that stuff, you know, we found out he was using clones and stuff. And when he died, we watched his spirit leave. And that's kind of what went through Vader and destroyed all the circuits was his spirit leaving. He then traveled in spirit form all the way to the center of the galaxy where Biss was, where they had the cloning facilities there. And he had a, a warehouse of a bunch of his own clones. And he went into those clone bodies. But because he hadn't perfected the techniques and everything, the force powers that he had were ravaging the bodies. And he was going through them all so fast. And then Luke ends up sabotaging them. But I was wondering, you know, if there was going to be something similar like that. Like, oh, maybe Snoke's a clone. And like, maybe he had a, a facility set up out there. But that's that aspect like you were talking about about how maybe they should have waited because there's so much about the backstory between episode six and seven that we're wanting to know and this is trying to fill in those gaps but who's missing the key person that in legends was the one i cared the most about i i always want to know more about luke's current story i would drop any book and go to the luke one that was happening in his now you know like when they went back and did uh, luke in the shadows of mindor it was one of my favorite authors stover i did not care for it it was just not the luke in the now and yeah i i didn't actually like yeah that book missing either. missing luke is is killing me there's a part later too Hashtag yeah, where's exactly. luke? there's a part later when when leia has been where i'm like okay they're talking about it from the public's point of view and it's like well some people thought he was there but then he left some people were like well he wasn't there and I'm like, okay, well, if they use the name Ben, clearly he had to have been there because the name Ben doesn't mean anything for Leia. But yeah, his being gone was was major for me. And I was just like, no, man, no. What do you, Bruce, what do you think about the Palpatine thing? Well, I just, I, I agree with you that this does not seem like something Palpatine would do. If anything, it makes more sense in Legends that he would try to live on in some capacity and try to cheat death by creating clones. So really, after reading these books, I'm all for bring back legends at this point. <laughs> because this just doesn't really make any sense. I mean, this droid that's, like you said, like proxy that's supposed to be like Palpatine, that, I kind of erase that from but my they, head they don't, canon. They don't, they don't do anything mm-hmm. with. Like, right. they do it's absolutely just, nothing. Like, it's like, just there. It's just there, and then it's gone, and it's like, 
what the heck was See, but that? I'll give Chuck props because when he introduced it, he talked about his face being there by proxy. And I was like, oh, is that is that purposely to draw my belief to proxy? I was like, that's slick. He does do a lot of little things like that. I mean, there are all these throwaway references and and. I like and hate them. <laughs> like, I like the fact that he's throwing them out there. Like, there's one, like, there's uh, the Ghost Finder fleet that went up against the Sith Armada. Uh, you know, if they plan on doing something with that later, that'll be awesome. Otherwise, it's one of those things where I'll always be like, so what, what happened there? You know, like, he references the Sith Empire. And at some points, it's clearly he's talking about Palpatine's Empire. And then there's others where he's talking about one that existed before that, you know. And lots of little things like that that are thrown out throughout the book that I'm constantly like, Oh, like like uh, uh, Condor. Condor is clearly the new Ghent. <laughs> like, okay, he's the slice of the Republic's using. I'm down on that. Like, I can get it. But there's a lot of little things like that. But they're all so off the charts. You know, it's not in the aspect of like John Jackson Miller or like Lucino would do where they're referencing specific things. It's kind of like he's throwing things out there. I mean, even in the Battle of Jakku, we watch what happens in Star by or uh, Lost Stars with the ship going down. But it's not that ship. I'm like, wait yeah. a minute. I had to, there yeah. was no reference to Lost Stars. No, in this. no, and I was no, like, which would, didn't make any sense whatsoever. So, okay, I gotta ask you something. So, this is and and we finally get a little bit of confirmation about what the heck Luke is up to because they, he makes a throwaway comic that Luke is on the search for old Jedi teachings. So, finally, have some idea of what Luke's doing, which would which I I, I liked because it actually connected with Shattered Empire which we see Luke go and get the Force Trees. So we see this idea that Luke is going through the galaxy looking for stuff about the Jedi. What I don't understand about this, and, and again, this is a huge thing for me, and, and again, why it's all hashtag where's Luke. There's no way Luke Skywalker is not involved with anything like and and the the most frustrating thing about it is is that they can't do anything with Luke because we haven't seen episode eight yet. So what needs to have had happened, and and this is my honest opinion, this book series should have never been written until episode eight came out, and we had all that information about what Luke has been doing, so that you could use that information to fill in the gaps here. Because these books have a huge hole in them, and it's Luke Skywalker, and it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And, I mean, gosh, I mean, maybe they want to fill it in. Maybe that's the new series that Filoni is going to be working on. Uh, we've all had rumors that there's going to be a, a new animated series, and that would be my guess, is after season four of, of Rebels, they're going to do a Luke Skywalker series where he's traveling the galaxy, and that would be awesome. But, it still doesn't make sense that this main character would just abandon everyone he cares about and go on a, like a vision quest by himself and not have anything to do. Like it doesn't, it doesn't feel like that's not compute. No. And it's that way across the board. I think for me, that's the hardest pill to swallow. Like when they ditched legends, I was like, okay, sweet. We can have a Jedi Leia, you know? No, we're not going to do that. Okay. Well, there's a drop ball. I love Han. You know, he was one of my favorite canon characters, but I am not a fan of this, what I'm calling sulking solo. 
uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a good dad. Sulking Solo. I, I love I that. Go. Hashtag yeah. Sulking Solo. We're going to create a ton yeah, of hashtags I mean, tonight. Han, Han's feeling like a caged animal bothered the hell out of me. When he gets to the end, he's like, I'm a smuggler, not a snuggler. I'm like, I, I'm so glad that I have legends where the Solo family got to be a Solo family because this Han does not look like he's going to step up to the plate. And when they first talk about that, they're talking about how he's got nothing to do, that the Falcon's been retired in a hangar. I'm like, oh, man, already? But I think one of the, the other worst things is Chewie. You know, they've removed Chewie from Han. And then worse, we get this. But they gave Chewie yeah, well, Lumpy. Well, they, they give us I that mean, interlude. Part one, we get Lumpy back. I was back. excited about that because he gets to keep the name Waru. But he was still a Lumpy. I'm like, dang it. But I think for him, that was the worst thing. Granted, he was introduced in the holiday special. God, God forbid we even mentioned that. But when you think about that, he was living with his mom and he was living with his grandpa on Kashyyyk. He knew things about being a Wookiee, his family, his history, the world's history. In this, he's been a slave his whole life. He doesn't know his family. He doesn't know really what it's like to really be a Wookiee. He doesn't know nothing about anything. Like, that was that was a weird thing for me to digest, was how different Chewie's family is and the fact that Chewie's not in the background whatsoever. I'm just like, what they've done with the main core characters is killing me. I mean, Leia's basically a perpetual rebel. She's like, I don't care what you guys are going to do. It's easier to create rebellion. Rebellion's one, Han. We've seen it. We've helped make it happen. I was like, okay, all right. Like, I kept forgetting that bloodlines happen so much later than this because this felt yes, like her. It's like yes, she'd already been rowed out of yes. the Republic and she's like, I'm going to yep. do what I want. You know, I mean, you were mentioning about not caring about Snap and what's funny is like, I liked Snap, but I think it came because I liked Snap from the movie and I wanted to know more about Snap. But you're right. If you were only introduced to Snap from these books, he's a whiny, perpetual little turd. You're not going to want to know more about him. Well, and and that's something that, that's super interesting here because one thing that this book sets up in the beginning, in part one, I think is is very smart, is to finally give us some sense of what the New Republic is like. And uh, let me say this, and if there's any praise I can give this book, and there is, there is a few things... One of them is that the, the plot of this book is actually better than the rest of them because it feels more like the things that you expected from the aftermath of losing, of, of the Empire being shut down. And, and that's the New Republic trying to form itself, trying to make sure the Empire is taken care of, what's going on with Han and Leia, you know, uh, Mon Mothma creating that new, that new Republic. All that stuff is starting to finally happen here in a way that they actually, you know, we get to dive into. Some, so that's a huge praise for this book, uh, and and that I actually liked. But the problem is that I found is that there was it's such a cursory thirty thousand level view of everything that happens in the book, and what you want for something like this is more detail. And what was interesting about it, and and where it doesn't, where this the problem with focus comes in is here in the first part of this book. Part one, they really do set up this interesting dynamic between Mon Mothma and this uh, Tolwar who is running against her for, uh, you know, the, the, the chancellorship, I guess, of the New Republic. They don't, did they, the chancellorship, Mark? Is that who they, did they even call yeah, them Yeah, I think what they she are? still is the chancellor and they are running for the next term of chancellor yeah. at this point. Yeah. The Orishi so, guy, who's so, very similar to yeah, the Nogre. So that's, <laughs> yeah, so what that's actually what's pretty interesting but we don't we just don't get enough time to focus on that but the frustrating part about it is like you were saying how this puts leia on the outs already it's like 
this is 30, almost 30 years before Force Awakens. Why is Leia already feeling like she's going to start the resistance any moment now? Well, I can answer that question because I think that Lucasfilm sat down with Chuck Wendig and said, this is what's gone on in the 30 years. This is what where Leia is. This is where Han is or whatever till we get to The Force Awakens. And instead of looking at that and saying, well, these things may have happened over 30 years, Chuck took them all and put them in the in, in one year after Return of the Jedi and didn't expand on it. It's like we got this 30-year gap of really nothing going on. That's what it feels like. It feels like everything that would have happened right before The Force Awakens happened 30 years earlier after Return of the Jedi. And I don't have no idea where they would go with these characters if they were doing books for the next 30-year span before uh, The Force Awakens. Yeah, because we're not going to... I mean, apparently, we're not going to see Luke. I mean, we've been to, to, to Bloodline, and Luke's still doing nothing. Like... You know, so like I totally understand that, and and it's frustrating because, you know, Mon Mothma is kind of seeing Leia as comp- political competition in some ways, and that's so weird to me, because, and 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 the other frustrating thing is is that, and and let's just start talking about, it. Uh, Mon has no vision for what she sees for the New Republic, other than them not being at war. And that she's blown it for reeling back the military. She's like, if only I hadn't done this. (laughs) Exactly. Not only that, her only desire is just to win. And she becomes, throughout the rest of this book, a political opportunist who only uses positions to get herself reelected and not because she truly, absolutely believes them. She has no guidance. She, she, it, it's like there's no truth guiding Mon Mothma's life anymore. It's just about, well, well, apparently the only truth is, I just don't want to be at war anymore. You're at war whether you like it or not, lady. You, the, the truth of the matter is the Empire's still out there. They're trying to kill you. Don't, I mean, they tried to assassinate you and you're still all wishy-washy about, oh, what are we going to, I mean, it's just like, she doesn't realize that you can be strong on defense and still be somebody who is actively seeking peace. You know, I mean, gosh, what did, what did, uh, what did Teddy Roosevelt say? Walk quietly, carry a big stick, you know? And it's like, Mon Mothma is afraid of doing that because she's so afraid of becoming the next Palpatine. Honey, I don't think you're going to be the next Palpatine. You know, like, and, and what doesn't make sense is this woman does not feel at all like she's the woman we saw in the uh, two weeks ago in the Rebels episode. She doesn't feel like the woman from Rogue One, and she doesn't feel like the woman that I remember from the few minutes she's in Return of the Jedi. She feels like a completely different character, and it... it, it I, I mean, it's like character assassination again all over for my Well, life. at least you could say it was the assassination attempt's fault. I mean, I like the fact that even in Legends and now in canon, there's still an assassination attempt on Mon's life. I like the fact that the way Chuck wrote it, you know, like she's still like trying to close her hands. Like, you know, she's still recovering from it. So it's similar in that regards as well. But, you know, you're right on the aspect of depth, man. I mean, we get toss out lines like there's a new separatist union a new confederacy of corporate systems and the pirates have their so-called sovereign of latitudes we get no details on that it would have been a great thing you're talking about an era where the political ramifications are the key focus of the story 
Those would have been great things to know more about why they're there, what they're doing, what they stand for. No, instead, we get details about the Orishi species and how they're male and female. And when they each have a baby, they have one male and one female and then die. So the species never grows beyond the species size. And the Empire slowly wiped them out. Like, what the heck does that purpose serve the story? And yet you've got something like this where it does seem like later the pirates especially are going to play a big part. And we see that the the red whatever on Tatooine and that the Black Sun group are tying together. Yeah, the Red yeah. Key and Black Sun. That was a Sun, cool plot point, like... but the, the details could have been built up more in that first part, and they were left as throwaway lines. It was just like, I didn't understand the purpose there, and I kept questioning, you know, how much of this was just Chuck making up things and, and being crafty, and how much of it was... You know, like even Bruce suggests a list that he got from story group and I just got to hit all these key points and I'll just toss them in whichever way I feel. Yeah, there's a lot of great ideas that are tossed in, but then that's just it. I mean, the problem is I don't feel like this is really just someone that's sitting down saying, I'm going to write a good Star Wars story. I feel like it's like, okay, well, everybody's going to know what's going on. So I'm just going to throw all these things out there of all these things that are going on and what all these different races are and all these different situations. And then I'm going to throw in my characters and give them a little an adventure that links all these things together. So I have purpose to tell them. To, to mention that this happened and this happened and whatever. And it doesn't really work. It just doesn't work that way. See, the only thing that really works is the interaction between the characters. And unfortunately, they're so split up that you're real, you're rarely getting that. I mean, I think Sinjir is probably the only one that it doesn't matter where he's at and who he's with. He's always funny. I'm a professional. I don't get drunk. I get pickled. Like everything about the way he drops his lines and delivers his lines is great. The moment when he is looking at Han and Chewie and realizes he's in love with his boyfriend still, I'm like, oh my God, I was, I was laughing my butt off. There were a lot of great moments, but it was all when it was in those characters, but they were just so few and far between. I kept, that's where I felt like the interludes were really starting to disrupt the story for me. I, the second book, and especially the first book, I really cared more about the interludes than the rest of the story. But by the second book, Unlike with Matt, I was like, yeah, okay, these guys are a team now. And then I get that the plot in this was like, okay, they're a team, they're a family, and they need to do what they can to bring everyone back together. But it was just so spread out that, like, you know, we're breaking this down by parts, and it's hard for me to remember what happened in parts two and three. It wasn't until the end of part four that I'm like, okay, I remember it picking up then. And I think that's the thing that the, the interludes in the first two books, we're giving you all the things that you really wanted, which is this world building of the galaxy of after Return of the Jedi. That's what we want. We want to know about the state of the galaxy. That's the thing that this new canon and even The Force Awakens couldn't do. They, they didn't give you what the real state of the galaxy is like in this period. And this book is finally starting to do that, and so the interludes feel like interruptions in what you really wanted, which is the state of the galaxy. New Republic, Han and Leia, you know, a little bit of, we got a little taste of what Luke's doing, you know, those kind of things. When that stuff's happening, this the, the interludes do feel like interruptions. And I gotta say, stop doing interludes, Star Wars books, just stop it. It's not necessary. If you need to work something in backstory-wise or what's happening somewhere else, you need to find a way that is very clever to work that into the story. But the interludes, I apologize for being mean, if this comes off mean, but it's lazy writing because it allows you to completely stop your story and tell a, a part that may... Like, I love that we see Lando. He has absolutely nothing to do with this story. Like you said, make that a short storybook. Give, you know, uh, Delilah Dawson 
a, a, a book, you know, give, give anybody a book. Uh, you know, the, you did the, the four books, uh, and the journey of the force awakens about what was going on with Maz's castle and those characters do that. Don't, don't, don't just do throw away interludes here. Cause it's not helpful. Well, journey so, to the force awakens. Um, I mean, there's something too that, that, I didn't even think about when me and Nate were talking about it. The first book of this series was marketed as part of that. You know, quick, learn about everything that's going to happen before The Force Awakens. And I was always like, wait, that's part of a trilogy. Why is the first book part of the journey and not the other two? Like, that never made sense either. Yeah. I'm like, all right, we're already back to those old marketing games, which as a Legends fan, that worries me the most. I mean, I remember the days when Sue Rastoni, Leland Chi were telling us, it's all one universe. Leland Chi even made the bold statement of like, it'll always be one, I'll never let it be two. Although Pablo was always saying in his stuff, well, it's George's and then there's Legends. But you had that marketing line. Anybody working for Delray would always sell you, well, it's one. <laughs> and then and then George was just like, it's my universe. Everybody else just has their own thing. Yep. It's mine. Uh, well, and 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 so what's so interesting here? It, the, part one kind of ends with the New Republic in shambles in the sense of politically, where Tolar um, Wartal, the guy who was running against Mon Mothma, has found out the information about the Empire being at Jakku. He uses it for his political advantage to announce to the galaxy, hey, we know where the Empire is, and make this huge political upheaval for Mon Mothma like she was hiding things, even though she's only known the information for a day. Uh, what I didn't understand there, too, was why in the world, even if you're running against somebody, would you tell the entire galaxy on the holonet, we know where the Empire is, letting the Empire know that you know where they are? Because he's Donald Trump. I guess, apparently. <laughs> I uh, or, although, wasn't Donald Trump the one in the, the, the last election telling everybody he wasn't going to tell the enemy his plan by telling him what he was going to do? Well, that's exactly so at it. at least he understood he you don't do that. It. Yeah. Uh, so it was just very frustrating. Um, the, the second part here is very weird because this is where it, the story starts to really slow down. Nora and and Jazz on Jakku, it gets real slow. And uh, it's it's nice that we figure out, you know, who Nima is, Nima Outpost. We we finally meet the Hut, who apparently is a Mad Max like gangster. More snake uh, and, than slug. That was cool. Uh, yeah, ex it, 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 I mean that that stuff's all cool. But the problem is is that we visit her place like twice and you get kind of bored. Yeah. Yeah. Like it just I like part one, okay? I know we've been kind of like bashing things, but part one, I was into this. I'm reading it, and I'm like, okay, yes, this book is living up to what I want. I mean, you know, what little flaws here and there, whatever, that's fine. But th this is living up to what I want. But part two, part three, all kind of blend together. They just don't, like, in my mind, it's like nothing's really going on except them just trying to get around Jakku, and it's like everybody ends up with the hut. <laughs> it's like everybody had a pizza hut i don't know it's just weird the whole thing is just it's, it just didn't make any like i didn't care i just don't care it's like a donut the story is a donut to me it has a middle and it has an end and there's just nothing in the middle <laughs> it has a beginning and an end and nothing in the middle that's what i'm trying to say yeah no that's actually i think a really good way to, to put it bruce because 
you know, part two, I, I've written out notes for every single part. And I have them all on a piece of paper. Part one is like a whole page. Part two is like half a page. Like that's that's how little actually I felt like happened that was interesting to talk about in part two. Honestly, the, the biggest thing that, that was really interesting is, well, one was Embo comes back. That was yeah. kind of cool. It was nice to see Embo again. Uh, so he lost his dog, though. That dog died. So I sad. was actually glad, though, that he told us about that because that was immediately, I was like, where's Merrick? Where's, what happened to Merrick? Yeah, I and it was it was kind of sad that Merrick had died, uh, honestly. I, I thought that was a... And I like Embo. I think he's a really cool character. So it was neat to have him back. And obviously, you know, uh, Sugi's... Uh, yeah, yeah, Aunt, Aunt Sugi. See, and Nate felt that that was another one of those coincidences. Like, it just happens to have Embo on there. So, hey, you know, we're just... Hey, it's Embo. He says, let her in, let her in. Like, well, yeah, okay, you got me there. Well, and interestingly enough, too, on top of that, you know, as we talked about the writing style, one of the things that... Matt Stover was famous for was in his and and is critically acclaimed by almost every Star Wars fan I've ever met who's read it. His episode three novelization is the pinnacle of Star Wars books for most of them. We call it the Stover effect when you watch the film. It's just that good. He has this wonderful literary device in there and it's the this is segment. Unfortunately, Wendig tries to copy that by doing like this is and it starts here in part two. And it doesn't it it doesn't work because he's already been writing in that kind of like first person. So it, it instead of the third person omniscient, so it, it doesn't feel like it really fits here. Uh, and it just the problem is is that there are sections of the of of Wendig's writing where he already goes into that kind of thing where he's doing the this is without saying this is, but he'll just go into about wherever he is, the Jakku or the person or whatever. And then he starts this thing that Stover did where he'll say, this is, it just, I was like, oh, you're trying to do something from a master Star Wars book writer and it's it's not fitting with your style because you already used that. So you should probably not copy that. So yeah, it was very frustrating because it just doesn't work with, Wendig's prose, which tends to be so much more of a style where you are writing more like a screenplay than, you know, almost like it feels like a full-on novel. And so I I just didn't buy it. Part two also starts a very interesting uh, aspect of kind of seeing Rax's beginnings of the First Order Protocols, where they are stealing children uh, they are turning them into weapons from the very beginning. Uh, it it honestly now after seeing Logan seems very much like that. Um, and so I was uh, I was wondering uh, for you guys uh, about that of seeing these kind of like very minor first order beginnings. Do you feel like in the book that it really added much to? that or did you feel like you'd already inferred most of this from even just reading like you know uh the ep- the guide that we got for you know the force awakens or just what you saw in the movie i mean it just force awakens did a pretty good job i felt like of of telling you what the first order does with their troopers well, yes no because i felt like when i watched the force awakens and i saw finn and they talked about him being a stormtrooper from birth 
I had questioned, you know, what were they doing? I'm like, Jedi, were they going around and, and, and getting babies and stuff like that? So to find out that they were actually hiring huts and other pirates and stuff to steal the children, I thought that was an interesting twist. I was like, oh, so that's how Finn came about. Oh, so Finn's parents could be out there. We don't even know. And then I was thinking about the fact that, like, you know, technically the First Order even stills Ben Solo at some point. I'm like, oh, kind of got the gem of all gems with that one. <laughs> I... The the children aspect was one of my favorite parts of the book. I found that interesting. I mean, yes, I like Mark, I was thinking, you know, when I saw The Force Awakens, you know, Finn has been raised and conditioned to be like this since birth. And so I figured they were stealing children. But there's a creepy factor to this when children are attacking uh, stormtroopers and, and such. I mean, that's the scary yeah. part. And they've yeah, got that knives. Was super well, like, creepy. It's creepy, but I liked it. But at the same time, this gets back to what I'm saying. There's a lot of little things in there. Like I love the ideas, but it really has nothing to do with the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like like Kolob when he goes back to Jakku, and Kolob figures it out. So you're the one who's been stealing the children. Like I was wanting more there, and all it was was just some revenge for Rax. Like. And they have other moments where he's talking about that, where, you know, like he was killing people with his bare hands to survive there on the planet just to hide the secret for Palpatine. But it literally, that was just all it was. Like one of the little cool things in this was one of the interludes where we get a reading from the Journal of the Wills. I thought that was cool. Uh, and then anyway, I think it was uh, page 180. They're talking about these, these group of individuals are returning the Kyber crystals that the Empire had used. And it was kind of sad because... On the mission, the entire team gets wiped out. All they're trying to do is be noble and return something that, that was taken. It makes them seem insane. Yes, but but one of the little like, things that jump out... they are religious fanatics. Totally. Well, and even the guy that, that, was, that was the last point of view wasn't. So you're kind of like, you really felt bad for him. But one thing that jumped out to me, because of all these things they've been setting up with kyber crystals, was when they got there, in the wall, there were crystals of the colors red, blue, and green. And I was like, well, wait a minute, red? Like, I thought, I thought we were told that red was only when, when people corrupted them and stuff. Like, did Chuck not get that little memo or something? I was like, I thought the same thing. Cause no, those were rubies, amethysts, and emeralds. He just forgot yeah. to mention. And where's the purple well, and yellow so one? That, for me, that tickled me because Legends had, uh, the Cave of Ilum and there was a book series with the Jedi Ferris Olin and he had gotten his crystal from there and his lightsaber was red. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. That's, I can dig that. But the other thing, and it was something that we were talking about on Catalyst, uh, they talk about the kyber crystals being indestructible. And this, it was on page 181, they talk about these crystals were used in both Death Stars. That was their literal use of words. So I was like, wait, so, because I was hitting to Nathan, like, you know, so what, around uh, Yavin 4, was there a bunch of kyber crystals waiting to be scooped up or something? And it kind of makes you think, like, that might actually be the case. It, that whole thing was just weird. I mean, it was just honestly weird. And and then it it has this. Um, what I didn't like is I didn't like the reading from the journal of the wills at all because it the, this is the reading. The truth is in our soul. It is that nothing is true. The question of life is what then do we do? The burden is ours. To penance we hew. The force binds us all from a certain point of view. If there's no truth whatsoever. If nothing is true, then what does the good side, the light side, what does any of that matter? What what makes that right and the other wrong? If there's, I mean, it's like, this is just baloney nonsense. And it makes everything seem 
so pointless. Like, I'm sorry, but this is just utter, ridiculous, rhetorical nonsense. And I think part of it, and, 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 and I think I might have been talking to you, Bruce, but I don't think Wendig's specialty is writing fantasy. I, I there's a whole uh, Star Wars is so much more space fantasy space opera and it takes an understanding of that kind of literature and I don't think that's Wendig's specialty here. Yeah, I looked at his books that he has published and I didn't see any that that would fall into the fantasy category or even sci-fi. It's usually like mystery or thriller that kind of stuff. Which would make sense why all the character interactions are the best moments because that's the one thing you can ha- actually nail. I mean, you know, it's this part where we get John. Uh, and I think for me, I started at this point, you know, I didn't realize yeah, this was three, it. You're right. This was only time we're going to see John because even in the end of the book, we don't see John. It's all after the fact. So, you know, it was kind of sad because John's become a wanderer. He's left the commandos. He He never even asked to come back. Like, so for Jom, I was kind of like, oh, man, what a bummer. You know, like just this just gets more down note as we go. I mean, maybe they're saving him for his own book <laughs> or his own movie. Well, he's yeah, dead. He's, he's not, he's not make it. Well, no, book. for like so, an earlier time. I mean, before we dive into more of part three, and because there is some interesting stuff in that, uh, I did want to mention that in part one at the very end, we get this strange sense that maybe something is having an effect on Leia with her unborn child, this dark presence. So the question I have for you guys before diving into part three, is Snoke already having an influence on Ben in the womb? Is that what we're trying to say here in this book? That's that's what that dark presence is beyond the galaxy. See, is Snoke? I, when I read through that the first two times, I had missed that part. Like Nate was mentioning it. I'm like, what part are you talking about? And I'm flipping back through it. And I'm like, this is all I can find. And like, yeah, it's right there in chapter like, 10. She keeps talking so. about Luke and thinking it's Luke, but there's a darkness around it. So I was like, is Luke like, is he surrounded by darkness or is she perceiving that Luke's going to have some dark things? Like it was so vague that yes, I could think you could say that that's Snoke. And I think that Pablo and the story group has confirmed that Snoke has been doing these things, but hey, man, it was a real stretch <laughs> the way it was wrote. Yeah it, yeah, it didn't occur to me that it would be Snoke, but it sounds like it probably is. Well, good to know that everything is so vague in this book. And of course, we just found out from the Journal of the Wills, nothing really matters because it's not true. So just come from it from a certain point of view and what the hell? Why does this story even matter then? If, if there's no good or evil, true or bad or whatever. Nothing eh. really matters. matters. <laughs> nothing. Oh, good. Especially good when Dig's okay. writing. Uh, yeah. Um, so part three is where we get a lot more politics come back. And uh, this is where the storyline really picks up for the New Republic. And, and this is also where you really see Mon Mothma, I think, uh, really struggling. Because they find out that five of the senators... So in part one, at the very end, there is a vote. Do we go to Jakku and blow up the Empire once for all? And it didn't pass. The resolution didn't pass. So they find out that five of these senators are under the control of somebody. And they think it's Tolar. They think it's this senator who's running against. And this is where it gets kind of confusing. And I've read this book twice. But it seems like that the people truly behind it are the Black Sun and the Red Key Syndicates. But 
they don't give you a good idea whether Tolar is a, a part of that or if he's just a part of the assassination attempt on Mon Mothma to blow up her office and her at the same time. Like, there's this ambiguity about if he's involved with all of it or just part of it, and it just... I, this is where the frustration came in for me of not having the focus on the main story. And this is should be the biggest part of the story. Like, it's the biggest thing happening in the story of does the New Republic go off and finally end the Empire and all this political intrigue? And there's just not enough detail for this story. And I was really frustrated by that because this is the part of the story I was actually enjoying. Yeah, there's just so much. I mean, it's hard to, to really remember which part of the story I'm in. For me, most of my, my notes are like page this and page that. And really, when I'm looking over it, most of it's all little like comments on things, you know, like the fact that we had like a nod towards Delta Source with the fact that Leia's room was bugged and that that was what the other senator was using their information and stuff. Uh, we, we see the yellow aces that show up and stuff like that. Uh, but. I think for me, when we get to this political realm, I think one of the interesting things is the fact that the Senate was moving from Chandrilla and moving to another place, like they were about to shift uh, centers of power. And so like that also factored into everything that was going on, added to the tensions of everything. Like Mon Mothma wants to put things off and other senators are like, no, we got to do it now before we move the planet. And like, I don't know, there was, there was so much of that going on that I kind of wish and yet don't wish that we would have had more of Luke because... This reminds me so much of that early Bantam era with like Rogue Squadron and stuff where you had characters like Boris Fele that was just a constant political thorn in everyone's side. And I hated those moments, you know, but at the same time, I'm like, that's kind of what you need with Luke going on, right? Don't you need to have somebody be going, wait, well, uh, don't we remember what happened with the Jedi uh, all being traitors to a government? Like, maybe we don't want Luke Skywalker going out and learning this stuff. And I feel like there's an element there that's missing that might help add to some of the drama here that we don't know about. Yeah, it just, the Mon Mothma stuff in this section, just the only thing that I found good was her, you know, using the fruit to to keep that guy's ship there or whatever. I mean, it was Oh, just, that was slick. I will give that one. <laughs> just in, mean, the, in the aspect like the of, of like. things to do. You're like, oh, oh, she used the sensors against them. That's pretty mean. And that was really nice because that was a great piece of writing. And it showed the shrewdness of Mon Mothma being a good, you know, political manipulator, like political, you know, person, politically minded person, understanding how to take advantage of a situation in that in, in, the, in the best way. And what was frustrating, though, is that, you know, she seems to kind of lack this idea. You know, you can have strong beliefs in what you think is right to do. And you can even use military might when necessary uh, if you go through the proper democratic channels. Like, she's so worried about not being another Palpatine. She doesn't realize, look, if, if you have a democracy, which is great that you want, that's what you're trying to set up, if you have that set up and, and you go to war in a democratic process because the majority of people chose to go to war again, that's okay. That's that's the way the process works, right? Like that's why you set it up this way. You know, you're not forcing people into a war. You're you're voting, and if everybody you get the majority, you're able to do that. And it's like 
there's this lack of leadership and it and honestly it it came down to that whole journey of the wills thing like this whole idea that there isn't truth mon mothma seems to be somebody who's lacks the 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 idea that there is a truth like it's almost like she used to believe in it but she doesn't anymore she used to believe that yes the empire was bad and we need to replace it we need to go back to democracy and all of that but she's lost the motivation to continue doing that it's like she's just finally just got tired of war and she just kind of wants to be done with it all, whether it's finished or not. You know, it's like, no, you started this, you have to finish it right. You know, there, there's a, and, and there's a reason for that because you got to protect the people that you are trying to, I, and it just, it was so frustrating to, to watch this. It's like her characters from the original trilogy got so tired from those three movies that they just don't want to do much of anything in these yes, books. Yes, yes. In like the six or seven years, you know? Um, th- yeah. Well, and we know Mon Mothma. I mean, obviously, before, uh, all the way through the the dark times, you know, she's doing what she can to fight. And and we saw in that Rebels episode the, the pinnacle of who I think Mon Mothma is. Standing up, seceding from the... Uh, Senate and saying, no, I'm taking a stand. We're going to fight this, you know? And it's like she's lost that ability to see what the right thing to do is, even if it's the hard thing to do, you know? Even if it means, like, we need to stay in this war until it's finished. Well, you at least got the sense that, like, she made that mistake either in book one of this series or sometime before that, though. I mean, it's like she made the mistake and now it's like, okay... Yeah, I get where I was, was going. Was it all those Bothans that yeah, died clearly. or something? Or? But now she's at that point where she's like, well, I've already made the choice. We put this legislation in place. The deal's done. And I've really hosed myself. I've really put myself in a box here. Um, you know, and one other thing about that the chapter with the Journal of the Wills, that's the chapter where uh, Chuck actually had a character point of view say that perhaps there is no dark side. I was like, oh, really? We're going there? Like... <laughs> These are the dangerous things, Chuck. Thank you, dude. Should I order? Yeah, I'm like, these are the things that Legends got flack for, man. Let's not bring a lot of this back into canon. Like, they had to retcon that even later. <laughs> well, and I think that is an interesting thing, it, it, just talking about that. The, the whole idea of this whole Church of the Force thing, all of this is just so... I feel like a ton of ideas have been thrown out in this sequel trilogy era, and none of it has been well-defined. It's all just these kind of nebulous things out there that you're swimming through like a malaise of ideas. That There's no specificity with anything anymore right now. And, it, and the big reason is, is because, again, the sequel trilogy isn't finished. And so you're not allowed to touch anything that might have anything to do with things that they're going to use in those three movies. Then don't. That's the thing. And, and this and is that's 30 why years we're ahead. Here. We're, yeah. There are 30 years before these movies. We don't have to go and touch where could Luke Skywalker be and what, you know, all this other stuff. We don't have to go there. Well, let's just focus on where we were at Return of the Jedi and what happened afterwards and not worry so much about... Yeah, can we maybe have the aftermath <laughs> right. of Return of the Jedi? That would be great. Um, okay, so part four uh, has not a ton of interestingness in it, honestly. We get the interlude with the Acolytes. See, and that was where I was kind of... I found it curious because it's like, it's the beginning of part four, but they could easily put that at the end of part three because it did fit in with the whole Church of the Force aspect. This is the one that I really was hoping to, to bounce some ideas off you guys. 
because I felt like this is where Chuck really started to run into issues of bringing things into canon that I'm like, are we really going to bring that there? Because it was page uh, 256 and 257 where they're talking about the fact that these uh, Alkalites of Beyond are having dreams of Sith, both ancient and and recently living. So you're like, okay, recently living. Well, clearly there's only three that that could be Darth Maul, Darth Sidious, and Darth Vader. Okay, so they're showing up to them in dreams. Then it continues on to talk about that they're following orders of, quote, those who have died and waited beyond the veil and whose orders they follow. So they're getting orders from somebody that is dead. I'm like, wait, what? But, and I will say this, you know, you've seen uh, in, in, in canon Clone yep. Wars with... The Dathomir women? With... Um, no, not just the Dathomir women, but I'm thinking about the Yoda art. Oh, yeah. Where you had uh, Darth Bane, right, mm -hmm. uh, with Yoda. And and that's not a Force ghost. It's it's a holocron Force thing. Yeah. So it, it, it's... it's and, and, and so I, I'm wondering if maybe they're tying into something like that. But again, I think we're, what we're coming to is the non-specificity of Wendig's writing that's leaving this so open to interpretation that's actually hurting you because you're you could be coming to those conclusions that like you're saying Mark where uh, what are we actually saying here and if it was more like that they had some Sith holocron or it's Snoke that w uh, you know or, or just anything like that I I think you're absolutely right you, you this section kind of leads you uh, because he talks about like these um you know these masks obviously these lightsabers that they have now that the kids yeah. have, these acolytes have started to keep the living force uh, being tainted the dark side power on them and everything that's all great stuff i mean that in in it obviously i think we're reading to the knights of ren is is where this is all headed but i i almost feel like again this is one of those sections where this is probably something you really shouldn't touch until you can actually fill in the backstory completely. Yeah, yeah it's really dangerous. Because it, it's like you almost want to have, like, you know they had the uh, Lost Tribe of the Sith, John Jackson Miller, and that kind of stuff. You really almost want a Lost Tribe of the, you know, or that kind of series with the Knights of Ren. Like, just a story series following how they come into being. Yeah. But that's after the fact, so that you can go in and fill everything in. Because this stuff is kind of interesting, but again, this kind of takes away from because uh, uh, Tashu is there, and uh, it doesn't really seem to play with the time period. Like, how is he there? But then he's on Jakku. Like, when does this take place? Uh, the timeline is so messed up, and the, the 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 pacing and the feel and everything just feels off. It's interesting stuff, but again, I feel like it just. But maybe you just do a whole book of like short story interludes or something like. Yeah, the whole tainted items and stuff. The fact that they when they put the helmet on the girl character and she changed. I mean, that was something that Legends played with with the Obi-Wan Kenobi and the uh, Qui-Gon Jinn books. When they went to the planet that had the Sith Holocron, when they showed up on the planet, they had a physical reaction to the dark side that that put out. And Legends played with that angle. They had Vergere show up and she told Jason Solo, there is no dark side. And this was like a huge controversy. You know, everybody's like, what? No, no, Lucas said there's got to be a dark side. 
And her whole point to that was, you know, Jason had put himself into a place where he was afraid to act because he was worried about a dark side corrupting and claiming him. And she was trying to explain to him that there is no dark side. The force just is. But what we do with the force leaves an impact. And if you take and you do something, you murder some children in this room and this room is now tainted with a dark side. Now, anybody that walks into that room is going to be infected by the dark stain you have left. And that dark stain will corrupt you. But of course, that come later in like by Destiny's way, she starts getting into those intricate details and stuff. And in a sense, she retcons everything backwards. Like, yeah, there's a dark side. You got to worry about it. It will corrupt you. It will possess you and all that kind of stuff. So when we had that break from Legends and stuff, I was like, okay, so we're getting back to that George Lucas look at the black and the light, the dark and the light sides of the force. And then we have this coming forward. And I'm just like, oh, my Lord. Like, this worries me because, like, that's the type of stuff that Legends always got flack for. Everybody's like, oh, it's a good thing. It was so convoluted and things that don't make sense. And I'm like, oh, man, we're drawing a lot of things in here. And it's just so vague that you could roll with it in so many ways. Well, I think, Bruce, what we're what's coming down to is just a lot of this doesn't seem like, I mean, this is all supposed to, you know, fit together. Like it's all connected. Right. But I feel like so much of this feels disconnected, especially here specifically, as we're talking about the aftermath series, that's what we're trying to say is that we're feeling a disconnect from the story we're supposed to be reading. That's the problem is trying to get everything to connect because Lucasfilm isn't going to allow these authors to really fully connect and explore and do what they want to do and be creative to have this cohesive universe all fit together. The only way that's going to happen is if Lucasfilm sits down with an author and says, this is what you're going to write. This is what it's going to be about. These are your guidelines. Make this happen. But instead, they're working with a publisher that wants to put out the books that has the license and Lucasfilm says, that's fine as long as you don't go here, here, and here, and we'll give you little hints of this, this, and this. But just be very careful because fans, like us, are going to expect it all fit together. And if you go on some tangent that doesn't work with something we, may, we might do later in a movie or we may contradict it later, it's all going to erupt. So we have to be very careful. It's like in the early days of like the Star Trek novels, like when the next generation, those novels were coming out while the series was on and the Deep Space Nine novels are coming out when that series was on. There were so many restrictions. And now those novels have really blossomed because now the series are done and they allow the authors to build the universe among themselves yeah. and to create yep. their own backstories and, and continuity and move it forward. And we're missing that. In See, this. the New Jedi Order had what they called a Bible. And one of the things I loved about that series was... It was a 19-book series, but it was also an era. I mean, they kept talking about it as a series, but really it was just a big era with standalones, duologies, and trilogies. I mean, and all it was was a bunch of authors. They all had a copy of this Bible, and they all knew the direction that they wanted to go with the story. And I'm just kind of surprised that the story group isn't handling things more in that direction. I mean, when they first talked about the story group, it was like, well, J.J.'s doing everything with this movie. It's like, OK, so is J.J. involved with the story group? How's that working out? Like, does he is he get to sit at the table? Is he you know, is he throwing ideas in or are they just coming to him and saying, look, this is what we want to do? And they never even told us that. So, I mean, immediately I was like, OK, I don't know how long we're going to be able to stick on this boat before we have errors starting to show up. Because as we get in part four or five, when we finally get to the Battle of Jakku, we see one of the ships basically succumb to the battle attack that we see in Lost Stars. And it's not the ship from Lost Stars. I'm like, wait, 
that was like a big moment in Lost Stars, and it was a big moment for the character because of her role in the fleet. Like, why not use that moment? That that was an odd moment for me. And I honestly, when that happened, I was like, hey, Nate, was that that ship? He's like, no, surprisingly, it wasn't. Like, Well, yeah, because it's, it's the Super Star Destroyers, the Ravager that gets pulled down in in the last battle. And that's, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's not the Lost Stars book, and it just doesn't. I, my guess is is that other ships went down. We just don't get to see that one, and it's was frustrating. A couple of things I want to touch about on, on Part 4 that do happen that are just interesting here. Uh, you do get the Lando in Cloud City, uh, and, I mean, I guess for any Lando fan out there, you get to figure out what Lando's back on Cloud City. He liberates it. Way to go, Lando. Well, that was cool because he actually had to. Like, he was hoping that the New Republic would help him, and they were like, no, you're on your own. Oh, and the New Republic's not helping anybody but themselves yeah. these days. <laughs> yeah, uh, they didn't even want to have Kashyyyk, but that's a whole other book. We talked about that one already. Uh, this is also where Mon Mothma appoints Sinjur to be her advisor, uh, which, you know, Sinjur's a fine character, and it was interesting to finally see him... Uh, find a place to where he belongs and he's really good at his job and mainly it was because he's so good at communicating in a way to get people to do what he wants and that's what Mon Mothma wants and that's also something that bothered me Mon Mothma in this whole book talking about how she doesn't want to be a Palpatine right but her goal is to get an advisor that can talk people into doing what she wants isn't that kind of what Palpatine did like just Tell people what to do. I am the advisor. And they did it. <laughs> it's like, so you're going to hire the ex-imperial who's good at persuading people, sometimes violently if he needs to, to go your way. But you don't want to be a Palpatine. But you'll let somebody else be a baby puppet Palpatine for you. That's right. Baby puppet Palpatine. I just made that up. <laughs> Hashtag baby puppet Palpatine. Like, it, 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 I... Because I've I've seen people talking about how they were happy about where the Singer character comes to in this book, but honestly, if you're a Singer fan, how can you be happy about this being his end? That basically he's coercing people, maybe just verbally, but he's still coercing people to do what he wants them to do. That's that's not necessarily a step up for an Imperial. Good that's basically what point. his old job was, wasn't no, it? No, you're right. Because he, I I did come to like Sinjir a lot uh, like I told Nathan every time I close my eyes I always see Neil Patrick Harris like he reminds me of like a combination of Barney and, and Neil Patrick Harrison himself so I, I really kind of fell in love with the character I mean it, when book one came out I was in denial I was like oh he just said that to jazz he's not really gay then book two I was like okay clearly he's gay all right I'm, I'm down like a, a gay Sinjir okay uh, but I like the complexity of the character so finding him to I, I feel like you're right in the aspect of he is kind of doing very similar to what he was doing before. But I think the fundamental difference here is, is that the new Republic isn't the empire and they're at least trying to do good. Whereas the empire, you may have a few officers that really believed in the hype and all that, but for the most part, it was all just self-serving. Uh, whereas Sinjir is able to take the best parts of what he was good at and now turn it to his family in a sense. And he's really come around to the point that, the New Republic is a family for him. I mean, whereas the Empire, that wasn't so much the case. It was more he was out there looking out for himself. It was the bachelor life. It was the, the right. get all I can get kind of thing. And now he's definitely in a different place mentally, even though physically he does seem to be doing a lot of the same things. Hmm. I hadn't really well, thought about what that. What worries me about it is that it, it, 
too, and 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 this is just part of the storyline, is that Mon Mothma doesn't seem to have a, any positions, really, except for that she doesn't want to be at war. That's her only position in life, really, <laughs> these days. Uh, and and that's a frustrating thing because there there doesn't seem to be. It's not as though I feel like Singer has turned the corner for what's right. It's just the people that accept him. Like, and that doesn't make it right. It just makes it, oh, you're accepted. And 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 that's what's frustrating here. It's like, I feel like Leia and Han are the only characters in this story that have an idea of what's right and what's wrong, and this is why we should do it. Like, and... Well, and it's more even Leia than Han. That's a real frust... Yeah, but that's a real frustrate. Well, but at least Han, like, he he has the honor to know that he owes Snap and and therefore he owes him he will go and help him like that's that's honorable like he has that sense of smuggler's honor still right uh, but yeah you're right the, the leia really is the only one here because luke's gone who seems to have any clue about a right or a wrong and why we should do something and even if it's hard we should still do it like liberating kashik or any of the other places they need to liberate that mon mothma's like no, it's too hard. It's going to be too difficult. No, it'll cost too much money. I mean, it's like this whole idea of being altruistic and everything. She's lost all of that. It's just kind of like trying to set up the, I don't know. It just, well, it's like Leia said to Lando, the rebellion was easy, Lando. Governing's harder. Uh, I want to ask you guys, though, you'd mentioned the Lando scene. Did you guys catch the subtle reference in that chapter? I didn't until my third time going back through, and I was reading that one specifically because me and Bruce were talking about Lobot uh, on the last Star Wars Report episode. And what it is, is it's a throwback to the Star Wars game, uh, Star Wars Uprising. And in that game, there is a governor. Oh, see, Adelhart. I didn't play through most of that game. So. Well, see, <laughs> I only know this. I started playing the game and it was actually a big pain in the butt. But Nathan actually went all the way through it to, to learn the story mode. And it's on page 311. And it pretty much almost word for word, the backstory of that game. After Endor... Uh, he thought he would be able to just sweep in there like some handsome king retaking his throne in the sky. But then that son of a slug, Governor Adelhard, formed the Iron Blockade, which was the whole plot of the game. Okay. Oh, that's right. Iron, uh, or, uh, right yeah. Adelhard kept the people there trapped not only by a well-organized Imperial remnant, but also by a grand lie that Palpatine was not dead. And so I, I was, I mean, it was subtle. It was in there and I was like, oh, hey, like. You know, no flashing light saying this is it, but I was like, oh, hey, there's a reference there. The only time anybody will care about that game. Yeah, pretty much, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then somebody out there in story groups going, it's all canon. It's all connected. See? See what we did here? That was planned. You're like, yeah, right. Okay, so let's get to part five. So part five is the point at which a lot of the storylines obviously converge. And this is also where something bothered me truly about the book which was i had enjoyed ray sloan and and the character of what's happening with the empire so much but this book she spends so much time not doing much that by the time you got to the end it was kind of anticlimactic it it just she was so out of it for most of this book in the sense of like she wasn't really doing much. She's trying to get to whatever it is on Jakku and figure out what's going on with the Empire and find a way back in. But what they have her do is so uninteresting. But the only really interesting thing between her is between her and, and Nora. And I thought it was fascinating the way that he mirrors the characters. That they are both so similar. 
And the only thing that's driving them in this book is revenge. And that both of these characters, especially for, on Nora's side, she thinks that, you know, obviously Ray Sloan is so awful, but really she's not all that different than Ray Sloan. She's driven by the exact same thing, revenge. And uh, whether that revenge is warranted or not, or good or not, or any of those things is kind of, uh, it, this, this book unfortunately makes kind of irrelevant because neither of their storylines really come to much fruition honestly, but it was interesting at least having them be a mirror for each other and that really these two aren't that much different. And I think they recognize that. At least that's the interpretation I had. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if they ended up respecting one another. I almost feel like Sloan maybe has a respect for Nora. I don't know if Nora really has that kind of respect for Sloan, but it felt that way. And it almost, the way it ended, I mean, even though I don't really want a fourth book, it almost... Sounds like something I'd want to see these two uh, meet up together together again sometime. I mean, maybe if this book was the first book in this trilogy, uh, seeing these two characters together later would be more interesting to me than it was this time. Yeah, I, I, I think when we see Nora have the moment of ultimate trust is when she tosses the gun to Sloane. Uh, you know, when there's the big battle with Rax, I think that's like the big moment for her. They just went back and forth so much like... I think it's interesting, though, at the beginning of the book, Nora is more like Jazz than anyone else. And it's like Jazz's point of view that really realizes it. She's like trying to pull Nora back from the edge. Like, you're, you're pushing too hard, you know? Like, so much so that, that in a lot of ways, she went completely backwards on a lot of things. Like, you know, she reabandoned her son at the beginning of the book. Just completely like, you're like, whoa, holy cow. Yes, like, yes. I can't believe you're like that hardcore. So I get to that moment of when she lets Sloane go at the end, I'm like, God, is this going to be a mistake? You know, I mean, is this, you know, we we know that by Sloan going off that the First Order is going to be formed. And I'm with you, Bruce. Like, what would the interaction of those two be like if they met up sometime after The Force Awakens? You know, you're like, I should have killed you on Jakku. Yes, you should have. <laughs> Blam. Like, I, what would that be like? But that's actually a, a situation here where you have two characters that now I feel like we have a relationship that's interesting and we have ended the book. Like, there was never that thing in these books that was like, okay, I want to see what goes on with these two. Or, or yep. maybe I'd get a little of that, and then it just kind of falls apart. Nothing really develops. And, and maybe that's what well, would happen. And you'll probably never see them again. Probably like, not. When, I mean, when are we going to see them? Is what I, I mean, when will we ever see them interact again is, is the frustrating thing. And I think, uh, you know, it, we end up kind of learning, and this is where the real frustration came down for me too. There's this whole thing about Jakku, right? And that Jakku is this spot, this planet that used to be beautiful and life-giving, and now the only seed of like life is in its core, and we've drilled down to its core, and it's basically a bomb for racks to blow up and to destroy both the New Republic and the Empire all at one time. What? 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 I don't... It, again, this is one of those places where there's so little information about what they're telling you that it just doesn't really all make all that much sense. Well, it's clearly like in it, the instructions to chess. <laughs> yes, exactly. Apparently, it's the, it's the instruction book at Jakku that got lost. Yeah. Um, well, that was the thing about it. They kept playing up the fact that the galaxy was his damas board or whatever it was called. And he was looking outside the galaxy for others. And this gets to that point in chapter 35 when they're talking about the observatory. Uh, it goes, this is the observatory. It's one of many scattered across the galaxy. 
All of them are laboratories in a sense, and all of them look beyond the galaxy's margin in different directions. At the same time, each is also its own unique entity. Palpatine began establishing these observatories before the start of the Galactic Empire, which I thought that was kind of interesting. He infused each with purpose. Some were meant to house ancient Sith artifacts, others designed to house powerful weapons designs, or the weapons themselves, others still meant as prisons, harnessing the life forces of those captured within for a variety of strange purposes. Oh, wow, that sounds very much like the KOTOR game and the whole, what the, the villains there were doing, uh, taking life forces out. Well, it also sounds like uh, Darth Plagueis and the laboratory that he had yeah, set up, correct? Yeah, exactly, yes. But that that sense that he was looking outside the galaxy, it's like, that's that aspect that it doesn't add up because it, it seems like they're setting it up like he's looking out there to conquer more of it. And yet then they talk about, well, him feeling that dark presence that only he feels. So it's like, okay, is is he looking to conquer more land? And then now we've got this contingency plan where it's like, well, I've lost this board, so eh, I'm going to move on. But why would you it's wipe like the out the risk game where you know you've lost and you just throw it up in the yeah, air? I'm, like, I'm gonna go over I'm here. here. I could take some of my weapons, but not all of them. Like you almost get the sense that the entire building of the empire was flawed, and he knew it. And at some point, he was gonna have to cherry pick the best soldiers and the best weapons and the best everything and go set up shop somewhere else. But it all comes into play after his death. So. Unless one of these these Sentinel droids are supposed to take over, it makes no sense as to why. Unless maybe we'll find out later that Snoke has already contacted Palpatine or something. Like Then maybe I'll understand it more, but I'm at a loss. That's the frustrating thing is that the contingency, or not the contingency, the observatory was the most interesting thing to me about this whole thing, finding about what's going on in Jakku. And I feel like it came, came, came to nothing, really. Yes. Like... It's so underwritten and there's so little information about it that it it just means nothing. The most interesting thing there is that there is a yacht there, just like the one that Lando stole, that has been put there ever since it's been built. It's never been used. Uh, the Eclipse, I think it's called. Uh, and the Imperius, Imperialis is the one that Lando had stolen. And then it got blown up in the Lando comic, which was a great comic, by the way. Um, that's the most interesting thing that happens in this observatory. The rest of it, it's like, you spent this whole thing, like, building up this mystery about Jakku. And all I know is, is that you drilled down to the core and created a core bomb? Right. Because there's this, like, blue mist that comes... None of this is being explained, and it just feels like, why should I care? You haven't given me any reason to care about any of the characters or the story points. It's just coming to nothing, and I find that it's really frustrating because I've invested three books in this, and the payoff for this series is everything I already knew from The Force Awakens. Yeah, the Empire was defeated, and they went and formed the First Order. There's no, there's just not that much information in everything that they kind of told me what happened. I'd already inferred from The Force Awakens. Yeah, you're right. I mean, this whole thing just frustrates me more than anything. I read book one. I read book two. At the end of book two, it hinted to this observatory or something on Jakku. And already I'm like, ooh, I can't wait till book three comes out. And then I start reading book three and I'm into, you know, part one. And I'm like, okay, I'm, this is it. This, this is the book. This is the payoff. And then it slows down. And 
I'm okay with that because the reward is going to be at the end. And then when I got to the end, I actually closed the book and I thought, did I miss anything? Because that just seemed like that was nothing. Did I, did I fall asleep or did I skip a chapter? Like, it was nothing. You probably fell asleep and you didn't realize it, but you didn't miss anything. Believe me, I read it twice. They, they in the first two books, were talking about how whatever was there on Jakku was ancient and stuff. And I'm like, okay, so was it just the mist the whole time? That was that was the ancient thing that everybody was, like, coming and worshiping at? Like, that was the thing where I was yeah, in the same boat. Yeah, it was, boat. like, mysterious. There was something mysterious about it, but there's not. Mm-hmm. It's just a weapon. The mystery is that it's still a mystery because it's still not explained. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things I also liked about the shift at this point is the revenge moments. Uh, Sin gets to take out Wartal, uh, the uh, other senator. And that was uh, page 367. I love the fact where he's like, no, I'm not of mind actually to kill you because I'm one of the good guys these days. And I've appearances to keep. But you will wear, he's all, but I will wear you down until you're nothing, until you're not but talking jabbering head. Like he shot him in the arm at this point. He's like, I'll just keep shooting you over and over again if I have to. You're like, damn, Sinjir. Like, but at this point, again, he's serving the side of good. So I'm like, I, I was a Sinjir cheerleader. But the other moment is when uh, Ray Sloan is doing the same to actual Rax himself. It's like, every shot feels perfect. Every shot feels like revenge. Sloan's heard stories about revenge, about how it never really finishes everything, but about how it never truly completes you. But at this moment, she disbelieves because this feels better than anything she's ever felt. I'm like, yes. Well, and I think I think that's the thing that I'm frustrated about with this whole storyline. And maybe it's just because it fits our culture these days where everything is just about how you feel mm-hmm. and that's not great storytelling just about how people feel like that's what makes things true that's not true and maybe that's why this book feels for not because everybody's just acting on these feelings like mon mothma is just acting on her feelings not about the principles which she's been living the rest of her life like the principles that we saw that led her to be against the emperor and and to leave the senate like nobody's living on any principles anymore other than what they feel in this galaxy and the only one who seems to be doing that but has no say anymore is leia or elodie like the interlude with her where she's you know we've seen her in the second book she's that he she zahir character that's the gender neutral She's a pirate. Again, we were told about the whole latitudes or whatever. The, they're creating their own pirate nation. They go into that more at this moment. And she is basically taking out the strugglers or this, the stragglers that are leaving Jakku and wiping them out because she's like, oh, this is a smart play. Like, if we're going to build a nation, we're going to have to come at the New Republic at some point. Let's come at them as equals and have a leg to stand on and be like, hey, we took these guys out kind of thing. The, the thing about this, this whole thing that frustrated me, too, is that Rax, Rax doesn't pay off either. Like, everybody is hoping Rax is going to turn into Snoke. Like, you saw that on Twitter all over the place. But it, Rax just becomes this throwaway character who, again, who means nothing. Who at the last like, minute throws everything Sloan's way, which was so weird. Exactly. Like, and, and again, it, it's like, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, things like you said at the beginning, we were talking about it, just seems to be an accident. Uh, or just lucky. Or any of those things. Like, it's just so weird. I, I just so frustrated. One of the things that I, I thought was really interesting too, you know, Singer's talking to 
uh, Tolar, and he says, you know, meanwhile, your opponent is a woman who wants to give democracy to the entirety of the galaxy, freedom for all, oppression for none. And the conversation that they are having here is setting up this false dichotomy that if you want to get the democracy to the galaxy, it means you can't also be strong on security for the galaxy. Like, and in the end, aren't they two sides of the same coin? If you're going to create a galaxy, you need to create a galaxy that's safe enough for that democracy, right? Like, again, there's just all of these things happening that have become so frustrating. And I guess in the end, we've been talking for a long time now, and I, I really just wanted to ask you guys of, about the aftermath. You know, uh, first, what's your rating for um, Empire's End? And, and where do you think this kind of leaves us what lessons can we learn from this series for the new canon? What do you think, Bruce? Maybe stop writing books? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think the lesson to be learned in this is, in my opinion, if the publishers came to me and said, where should we go from here? I would say, pick a character or two, whether they're original or from the movies, and write just a story an adventure for them and not worry so much about the world building because what I feel like is happening. It's all these, these ideas that are out there. They're almost like someone opened an encyclopedia and in the margins, try to write a story around it with their own characters that these are just, I, I love all the little ideas in this, in these books. I love, I love the ideas that are there, whether some of them work or not, they're really creative, but nothing really comes to fruition with them. Nothing really goes with it. It just, it just kind of is there. It's just mentioned, and that's it. And then we get away from it, and we scratch our heads, and we're like, what, what's going on with the, the Palpatine robot? What, what happened to that android thing? You know, it's like, and, and what's, what's this observatory? We didn't really get that much about it. It's just so much is lacking. It's like, just tell a good Star Wars story. Don't worry about making it this big investment in the universe that answers all these questions just because Lucasfilm isn't going to allow you to do that right now. So just tell a good story. So for this story, for me, I was disappointed more with the end. I know there's some people I've read reviews that love the characters. They didn't really work that well for me. So if you love the characters, this might play better for you, but uh, I'm going to have to say I'm giving this two and a half out of five observatories that I still wonder if there's anything to it. It's for me, I like the characters, but again, they were so spread out so far apart and it felt like they were second stage to an overall plot that was just all over the place. So I just, I couldn't give it any higher than a six, uh, but I couldn't be as hard as I was on the first book because I still enjoyed this. And I think the second book endeared me more to the characters that I wanted to know more about them. So I think that that also plays into things for me. But at the end of the day, I still feel like I don't know what's going on. I mean, I think Bloodlines is still giving us more of an idea of what's going on. At least in Bloodlines, we knew the First Order was back in this galaxy setting up bases and stuff. At this point, all we know is that they're off in another galaxy setting up shop. I mean, or they followed some maps that Thrawn helped get. And that's the only reason the Emperor had him around. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like, so are they in a new galaxy or in a void? I mean, Ray talks about colonies and it's, quote, their new galaxy will never have known a time without an empire. I'm like, okay, so they're in a new galaxy now or they're 
they're basically have they pulled what the old Sith Empire did back in the old old stories where the Jedi thought they wiped them out, but there was a whole nother planet of them living off in a nebula and they just kept building their empire. We're like, hey, let's not go over to that Republic space because they don't like Sith at all and just built an army and built an army and built an army and built an army and, and then come right back. Like so you know, I go to bloodlines. It's like, well, bloodlines still made it feel like the first order was in its infancy. They were still kind of just kind of coming into a place where they had enough troops that they could start to be an issue. But I don't feel like this has put us in any kind of a progressive step towards that. I feel like this told its own story and it had promises of things like what was going to happen on Jakku. And it just did not deliver. Uh, for me, the only thing about this book the only saving grace is the characters and their interactions. And that's not something I could put up very high. Now, if I was to tell the Lucasfilm story group, you know, how, how would I want him to go? For one, I would say, okay, stop with Chuck. Chuck's done. Uh, I think he's he's left an impact and we don't need to, to do any more of this type of an impact. I don't think it served its purpose. If anything, I would give Chuck maybe do something like when they did Fate of the Jedi or Legacy of the Force, where he's one of three authors working together, but I don't know if he's the type that could work well with other authors. Uh, but I'm with Bruce in the aspect of, you know, you've got to focus on more characters. We got a new book, uh, Join the Resistance, that's set up on uh, these characters for J Squadron. And they're it's set after The Force Awakens. And they're new pilots that are basically building up the resistance because we watched all the pilots get beat up and taken out. There's only about six or seven left. So, you know, you get stories like that. And I think that that'll be something that helps, uh, uh, Zare Leonis from the rebel series. You know, he started out, uh, in the books and then crossed over into the show. I think that having that kind of crossover is helpful in the, in the realm of world building. But if you have what's going on and what I feel is going on here, where you don't have a heavy hand with story group, that could be a huge problem. Uh, if you don't have somebody checking into these little consistency things, when you've got the Battle of Jakku and you've got a Star Destroyer being pulled out of the space with a tractor beam and it's not the one that you've already had in another established story, it's like, who dropped the ball there? Like, you, you could have worked that a different way. And it just, for me, that's the things that I come back to as an EU fan. We ditched the EU because of issues that were caused by these type of creative works that down the road, people are, oh, it's riddled with issues. It's like, well, at the time, we were like, well, we can't do anything because we're making this movie over here and it was all tight-lipped and the authors, they didn't know. And these guys were working with comics. These guys were working with games. And, well, we're right back to that same thing. I thought the story group was supposed to be that cohesive net to make it all work. So unless the story group really takes charge and starts doing something for these guys, telling us what they're doing, I fear for the, the state of the future of the canon. I mean, I look at my shelf and the books on that shelf, like, I like Star by, or Lost Star. Uh, Lost Stars is great. I enjoyed Battlefront. I really liked Dark Disciple. Ahsoka was good, but the rest of them are mediocre at best. They all suffer the same type of issues. And it's like, you're in a new realm here where this stuff could be working in a whole new way. You could be, I mean, Ray Sloan's about the only character that's really been developed that came out of the books. And yet we see other characters like Captain Brunson and stuff. And I'm like, is that Ray Sloan? Why isn't that Ray Sloan? Like, Again, all these missed opportunities. I'm like, what the hell? And when we try to take the opportunities, I feel like we trip, we stumble, we fall, we bust a tooth. It's interesting because I feel like the theme for the sequel trilogy era now is not recognizing threats before they're almost upon us <laughs> or within The Force Awakens when it's too late. Like, that's really the theme, apparently. Uh, and that's kind of a frustrating theme. Uh, I also think that uh, just here with the this trilogy and specifically with this book, I'm right there with you, Bruce. Uh, this is 
2.5 out of 5 empty Singer whiskey bottles <laughs> because that's how many whiskey bottles I wanted to have empty next to me after reading this book. And 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 really look, I don't want anybody to think that we're just sitting here beating up on Chuck that we're beating up on the book for no reason. I think we've pointed out in this this whole hour and 40 minutes of talking about this, because we're kind of wrapping up this trilogy, so it's okay that it's longer for you guys. I hope you don't mind. But I, I think the frustrating thing here is, is something that we're having a problem with with the overall story group in this sequel trilogy right now, specifically here, is that we're working in a time period where we don't get to have all of the pieces on the board. You know, it would be like playing chess, you know, to give the chess analogy, and you're missing everything but your pawns. You've taken all the important pieces off the board. You're not allowed to play with them. And that's the frustrating thing because the, the unfocused nature of this story is what hurt it. Whereas you look at the focused the laser point focus for Bloodline, what makes that book so good is it's about Leia and it's about the politics. That's why it's so good. If you, if you look at A New Dawn, it's laser point focused on Kanan and Hera and those two meeting and, and becoming a team. Lords of the Sith, laser point focus on the, the relationship between Vader and Palpatine in the early days. Great stuff. If you ask me, uh, you know, the same thing for Dark Disciple. And well, part of that is it, it's just legitimately the screenplays turned into a longer form from the Clone Wars. And, and then uh, I've got to mention uh, the young adult books. Uh, you've got Lost Stars, laser point focus on these characters working their way through the Empire as we knew it. Uh, you've got the young adult books like uh, uh, Weapon of the Jedi and um, Smuggler's Run and moving target. Why are those so good? Because they're laser point focused on one of the characters in the tr in the classic trilogy era. Like again, what works so well, and this even goes for the comics, work in an era where you have full creative control to use all the pieces on the board. So, if you want my opinion, not that Lucasfilm cares at all what I think, but if you want my opinion, why? where should we be playing with new canon? Play in the places where you have all the pieces on the board. Go back and tell those unfinished tales of the Clone Wars that we'll never see anywhere else. You know, go back and tell me about what was alluded to in the Ahsoka book with the whole Mandalorian arc. Yeah, Siege right? Mandalore, yes. You know, that stuff. Go back and finish that stuff. Um, you know, find a way to tell fun stories in the prequel era. Maybe, maybe do a whole series about, I mean, heck, Jude Watson had an amazing series with Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon with him as a young student. Go back and tell those stories where you don't have to worry about anything touching the sequel trilogy. You have full creative control and you're adding something that's fun for Star Wars fans to read. Then come back. Once the sequel trilogy is done, go back and fill all those gaps in then because you'll have all the pieces on the board. And that's the frustrating thing. That's what we're saying. That's why we're trying to be construct constructively critical here. We're not just trying to tear this series down. We're trying to say it doesn't work for these reasons. 
Uh, it has nothing to do. I I don't personally love Chuck Wendell's grading style, but there were some, like you said, Bruce. There's some really interesting nuggets in here, but they're nuggets that get passed over because we go to something else. And so, you know, I, I would say in the end, it has been an aftermathing. I mean, I just I I feel like the aftermath of this series has left us in a very precarious place for books in the sequel trilogy, and I'm glad that coming up. The books that we have are things like books about like Jen Erso uh, and her past. We've got Thrawn. We've got uh, the Imperial Squadron book, uh, Imperial Inferno coming out. Those kind of things where I'm going to be able to have, I think, a really great time diving into those books. And uh, I thank you for joining us here in 602 Club. Uh, it's been so much fun talking about this with you guys tonight. And I really want to thank... Uh, our associate producers through Patreon, Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson, uh, for all of their support here of the show for so many years. It, it's meant so much to me. I really appreciate it. Now, for, for those of you who might not know, uh, we are a huge network. We have a lot coming to you each and every week, uh, a show almost each and every day of the week. To do that, we need your help. There's no way that we can afford that all on our own. So go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can be part of our team Every little bit helps every month. We have some goals that we're trying to reach, milestone contribution levels. We have some great perks for you at different levels. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, you can be part of uh, what we do here. And again, like I said, every little bit helps. Uh, even if it's just a couple of dollars a month, it, it, it really does. You have no idea how much that helps. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can be part of that. Uh, Mark, it's been great having you here. I've been listening to you for years on Star Wars Report and Beyond the Films. I can't believe it's the first time uh, to ha to you, for you to be on my show. Uh, it, it's great to have you here. Um, but uh, yeah, let everybody know where they can find you online and about the shows that you do so they can find those. Yeah, well, I am uh, one of the founders of the Star Wars Report. So anything at www.starwarsreport.com, you can find all the Second Airborne podcasts there. Uh, I host on Star Wars Report proper, as well as Star Wars Beyond the Films, and with my children and Baron Lawton and his child at uh, the Padawan Perspective. Uh, we used to do Rebels Roundtable back before it became Padawan's Perspective. You find me at Illogical Rogue 2 across the board and uh, Mark Herleman on Facebook. Awesome. And Bruce, don't let everybody get out of here without knowing where they can find you. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, the little line, Admiral, little line, Rex. And you can find me doing stuff, hey, at the Star Wars Report with Mark and Riley Blanton. So I'm producer of the show and I'm on the show. So Mark and I were just, we did two shows last night we recorded. So this is like a, this is a triple whammy this weekend for us. And then also you can find me here on the Trek FM network on Literary Treks with Dan Gunther where we talk about Star Trek books and comics. I haven't given any Star Trek book a 2.5, like out of five, like I did tonight. So hopefully that will never happen. So <laughs> <laughs> that's where you'll find me. You'll find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I'm also here on the network with Chris Jones talking about Deep Space Nine and the Orb. Uh, cross your fingers, send your prayers. We hope we'll be back with that soon. Uh, I'm also on Star Wars The 602 Club Collection. You can find that on iTunes with The 602 Club and the Orb. I hope you'll check that out. 
I'm on the Nerd Party Network, talking about Harry Potter with Drea Kaufman. We're walking through each and every chapter of Harry Potter together, and it's a lot of fun. We're only about midway through the first book, so it's a great time to join us. Uh, if you love the books, if you've never read the books, we're the perfect show for you to check us out. And then I am also talking about Star Wars with John Mills. We just choose a fun topic each week, talk about that. In fact, this week, you'll love it. We're talking about Star Wars toys and collectibles, our favorites, our memories, it's just a blast, so I hope you will check both of those out on iTunes or at thenerdparty.com. Well, thank you all so much for joining us, and may the Force be with you.